I'm your host, Roger Tucker. I'm a native of Newark, New Jersey, and each week I'll be interviewing artists, historians, authors, and other cultural thought leaders to discuss the cultural impact and influence that Newark has had and continues to have on their lives and work. In this episode, Emma Wilcox shares her unique view of art spaces and the overarching power of eminent domain and how it shapes the places where we live and work. She is a photographer concerned with environmental justice, land usage, eminent domain, and the role of individual memory in the creation of local history. Emma was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, lived in Florida before arriving in New Jersey. She is co-founder with Yvonne M. Davis of Galleria Ferro, an artist-owned alternative art space in the heart of Newark, New Jersey's downtown district. Founded in 2003, it is home to two major public exhibition spaces and a 20,000 square foot building at 73 Market Street, offering exhibitions, events, and a studio residency program available all year round. Emma's solo exhibitions include Where It Falls, the Prince Center Philadelphia PA, and William Patterson University Galleries, Wayne, New Jersey, 2012. Emma Wilcox, 2010 at Gitterman Gallery, New York, New York. Salvage Rights, Real Art Ways, Hartford, Connecticut, 2009, and Forensic Landscapes. She is the recipient of a Harpo Foundation grant for Where It Falls, a NOMA Creative Grant, a New Jersey State Arts Council Fellowship for Photography, the Camera Club of New York Residency, the Newark Museum Residency, and was a core participant in night school at the New Museum in 2008. She was featured on Women in Photography and was reviewed in Art in America. She participated in Emerge 7, Algira, Newark, New Jersey, and AIM 29, Bronx Museum, Bronx, New York. Welcome, Emma. Thank you. Nice to be here, air quotes. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Emma, tell us, where are you from and when did you arrive in Newark? So, it's so funny. This question is... Um, not as simple as it might seem. And I I knew that I was going to be difficult on purpose. Uh, but the point of sort of obfuscating here is to, to back up a little and think about artists in the late 20th century and um, cities in the late 20th century. And I, I will answer the question. But I recently had the opportunity to write about um, our late colleague and friend, Jerry Gant. And so I traveled back um, rather intensely to 2003 when myself and artist Yvonne Davis and our friend Danny Breda, who had met at School of Visual Arts, uh, took out a lease on a fairly dilapidated um, floor. It was the fourth floor of a warehouse on Kinney Street in the Ironbound. But I, when I was revisiting that time writing about Jerry, I was just struck by this, the sort of beyond the particulars of who we were and our finite mortal time spans on earth, our dreams and ambitions, just this sort of collision and accidents of history mm -hmm. that all of these sort of economic and policy shifts and particulars had led up to this moment where cities had been deliberately disinvested in 
there had been redlining and white flight and deindustrialization and all of these factors that then sort of artificially made a lot of cheap real estate, including real estate right along rail corridors. And just there was this moment, there was this moment, and that moment was actually right, um, right at the start of its ending when we met Jerry in that building. So, so it was in 2003, but the farther away that I get from that time, I, I think less about who I was and the particulars of where I come from. I am from Jersey and more just about how these, these moments, these sort of accidents of history happen. Um, the relationship of artists to cities, I think is something that has shifted radically. Um, it's shifted so radically, it makes me feel older than I am sometimes because a lot has happened since then. Okay. So um, again, I, you bring up something, as you said, um, about the changing life of uh, artists and cities. Could you be a little bit more specific about that? So who, who am I? So let's get into the particulars. Okay. I was born in 1980. My birth certificate says Cambridge. Uh, then we went to Florida. Then we came to Jersey. And so where that places me generationally, a lot of my heroes, uh, many of whom um, were dead, but I still sort of claimed them as part of my, my cultural pantheon. A lot of them um, had not survived the initial part of the AIDS crisis. Uh, but a lot of the people whose work formed me, whether I knew them specifically or just sort of claimed them um, generationally, a lot of those people were able to um, cluster in in cities, you know. I mean, and this is one of these moments where the lives of queer people in the 20th century and the lives of artists um, are kind of similar. Where, you know, you leave where you are and you go to a big city, and and where I'm from, that meant Lower Manhattan. So um, there's this kind of um, you know intense clustering, and again, this idea of real estate that's been sort of artificially. Um, made cheap and and those sort of accidents of of um, spaces that become available for artists. Um, and so what I see now is a little bit the tail wagging the dog where um, artists were, you know, you move from a moment when, occupying space and stay in an abandoned storefront might be a specific comment on housing policy. And now, you know, it's a strategy employed by developers. So that's that's worth noting. That's not some sort of, um, you know, business as usual thing. It's, it's a complete shift of the way that um, we relate to space. Okay, thank you. So, this idea of space and this idea of Newark specifically, how has um, living and working in Newark informed your photography, curatorial, and gallery practices? So that there's this sort of totality with that question um, because when we started a Pharaoh, um, I was very young, I was 22. So it has just completely shaped me in terms of my practice and my professional experiences. Um, a pharaoh sort of aged in real time the same way that I have. So um, it's an almost impossible question to, to answer. But I just think of it as, as all these moments. And um, they're moments of 
of learning for me um, and the city forcing me to contend with things and to to go deeper as a thinker than I think if I had been elsewhere. And a lot of them are sort of collectively held moments, um, things that Yvonne and other people at a pharaoh that, that we did together. Um, they're not individually sort of authored projects. Um, and moments, some of which I don't even know about, moments where people had experiences at a pharaoh. And I, I feel like it's it's okay if we don't even know what they are. But if someone has these memories of you know, a really great night or a really great conversation, that's that's what we're in the business of doing is 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 sort of making those things and creating that kind of abundance of experience in the city. So it's hard to pick out any one example, but here I am, you know, art school graduate here, and um, I was completely completely influenced by, for example, trying to understand Newark's tax base. Because you get curious about things, you get curious again about where you stand in terms of the particulars of a sort of economic and political um, time. So I was on a walking tour of Newark, um, and there was this kind of interesting confrontation between someone on the tour and um, someone who also was attending the tour, but as a longtime Newark resident. And the one person was basically second guessing a lot of questions, uh, a lot of decisions that have been made during the Sharp James era. Mm -hmm. And so the other person said, what would you have done in that situation? You know, you have to understand the particulars of what was going on. He said, you see all these parking lots? Those used to be factories. Like, what would you have done? What decisions would you have made? So I looked into Robert Curvin's book, um, and there's an amazing chapter on tax abatements. And it starts, you start connecting all the dots. So now when, when I get um, asked questions or asked to, to weigh in on things like developments or uh, artist housing, or even the idea of creative placemaking, I, I have this sort of insatiable curiosity about how cities work as systems, you know, and, and research and, you know, proximity and access to these amazing thinkers in the city is part of what, you know, sort of allowed me to, to, to dig in. So, so being living and working in Newark, regardless of what hat I'm wearing, it sort of forces you to contend with the contradictions. It sharpens the contradictions. You have to go a little farther. Um, so again, this, this sort of specific example is one of probably tens of thousands but why is a 50-year tax abatement for, say, a stadium, why is that any more or less sort of organic or natural or inevitable in the sense of the inevitability of capitalism than, say, um, some kind of payroll tax deferment or other set aside or giving artists access to buildings? You know, the idea of, of what is sort of natural and inevitable, that's that's a contradiction you can really sharpen. Yeah, it's interesting, the um, idea of, as you said, tax abatement. I was listening to something recently. Oh, I know, it was uh, Malcolm Gladwell talking about the idea of golf courses mm -hmm. in um, Los Angeles. And Los Angeles hardly or unfortunately doesn't have many public parks. 
Mm-hmm. We do have golf courses, which take up typically about 200 acres. Mm-hmm. Those golf courses are um, subsidized by taxpayers, but they are private. Yep. You or I could not visit it or jog around it or, you know, walk on the course. And unlike other countries where they set aside time for the public to use those types of private spaces, we in the U.S. have sort of monetized things very um, to the um, not to the advantage of the of the average taxpayer, but the average business person who is not average. And so you're right. The, the deck is sort of against this idea of um, equity. And so, um, so I'm, I'm curious because you've been in Newark for a while now, you've been in Newark under at least this is your third mayor. Yep. Your third mayor. And um, how have you, how has a Pharaoh fared under those three mayors or it, it does it matter who the mayor is in Newark? So I, I think that um, resources, the idea of resources, physical and intellectual resources, not, not just currency, but mm-hmm. absolutely every possible thing that you could count on when you imagine what a resource is. Resources have always been completely central to a pharaoh's reason for being founded, uh, a pharaoh's um, efforts to develop different kinds of projects and programs and initiatives and are basically central to our ongoing existence. And part of um, part of that is connected with um, you know who who is considered um, in power and um, where where we go to for resources. So um, Again, this idea of creative placemaking, uh, I I um I get into trouble in meetings and I, I get into trouble in public. I am vehemently opposed to the idea of certificates um, and and certification in creative placemaking. And this is to me in in part and parcel because I'm I'm not into the the idea of the sort of ongoing tide of um, of certification and registration, um, you know that that's a trend that's happened in my lifetime, and I, I think it harms working people and working class people in particular, um, where everything is is sort of um, para professionalized. It's a kind of gatekeeping. Um, so again, just to take that further, um, I'm opposed to these this kind of notion of creative placemaking because I don't think the people need to be told how. And so just seeing, say, what has happened with um, the public perception of where um, specific pools of money might be uh, for the arts is fascinating because there's always the reality of where the money is and the, the conception of where it is and the conception about where it's going and then where it's actually going. Um, see, wow. Uh, used to get some money through um, HUD. It's uh, CDBG, right? So it's Community Development Block Grants. And so that's sort of federal money trickling down. 
And then um, there's this sort of verbal thing that comes that has existed under the first mayor forward. You know, um, people get money from the city. And I, I like things to be specific, you know, who in the city and and how do you access those funds and what are they for? Is it kind of a social mechanism of knowing the right people is an application based process? Um, how do these things work? Again, I'm really obsessed with systems and structures. So, you know, even more than the particulars of who the mayor is, it's it's like, what are the sort of enduring systems of how we access resources? Um, information as a resource. Again, one of these things that was a priceless education for me as a young artist um, was that we got um, eminent domain out of the first gallery of Pharaoh space. So that was tremendously educational, even though it was very painful and it was a setback for a very nascent organization. It was a priceless education in, in the sort of difference between how systems are said to function and how they actually function. And so sort of armed with those experiences that emboldened me when I was in rooms where I would hear people, usually not the mayor, it's usually someone else. It's someone whose tenure and their proximity to power and their perceived or actual power may go from administration to administration, possibly. I don't know how these things work. But there's usually someone in the room who would say something very casually, um, you know, let's put them all down on Freeling Heisen Avenue. You know, and, and so you're using words, either written or spoken words, to um, very casually sketch out a vision of other people's future. And I really think that artists, whenever possible, it's probably most productive to align yourself with other blocks of working people. Um, there's always the temptation to align yourself with the gentry class. But at the end of the day, like land use policy and how it affects working people, these are the things I encourage artists to dig into rather than sort of view themselves as some kind of rarefied class of individuals. So seeing the way that words function, I, I was sort of first exposed to that where under eminent domain proceedings, you blight a neighborhood first with words. And then later there's actual changes to the built landscape. But um, so it's not even so much who the mayor is, it's, it's just how we, share information by which artists and ordinary working people then have to make decisions about their lives. So my experience has been most artists are sort of unable to help themselves from investing in their neighborhoods. And um, certainly that was a Pharaoh's experience is, is we tend to we tend to put down roots and really sort of invest in a sense of place. So then you start to wonder, you know, where do where do these folks get their ideas about, you know, what a culture district should be, where it should be? I'm not just talking about Newark. This can be anywhere. The dynamics sort of replicate themselves. And who's in the room when those decisions are made? So these, these are the things that I think about is there's there's perceived power, there's actual power, and the function of resources. Um, and and I I have no resolved answers to these questions. They just come up every day in my working life. Mm -hmm. Okay. You mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, Seawell. You're referring to a city, city without walls? Yep. Okay, great. Which is no longer uh, with us, correct? That is correct. Um, so it's, it's bittersweet. I am 
incredibly proud that at 18 years old, so it's almost two decades, a pharaoh is the oldest currently operating artists founded and run organization in the city. I'm really proud of that. Two decades is ancient in alternative space years, but it's very bittersweet because we didn't want to be alone. We wanted to have these other organizations like City Without Walls, like Algyra, like Sume. It's very important for me to say those names. Um, and there's more, there's more names. There's names that don't get said enough um, that I think, uh, I think there were some spaces out there even earlier that I, I don't want to see erased or forgotten um, because there's this really incredible tradition in Newark of artists getting stuff done. It just, you know, it's everywhere. I mean, there's just this spectacular tradition of arts and activism. So I think why I want to kind of resist and be difficult with, with the question of, of where I'm from and why did I come to Newark is um, a part of the attraction was that it was not a tabula rasa. We wanted to connect to this long and vibrant tradition of arts and activism. So, um, you know, talking about the sort of economic tendencies of cities in the late 20th century and how artists can sort of sometimes fit in, you know, get in where you fit in. That's part of the story, but it's not the whole story because Newark is anything but the sort of tubula rasa, um, the framing of cities as being empty. Um, in the mid 2000s, people were still very unselfconsciously using words like prairie and pioneer, which I, you know, would I say over and over again, I'm not wearing a bonnet, I'm not branding cattle, that it's just, you know, the city is anything but. So there's just legacy everywhere. It's this sort of rich seam. I, I love your use of the term legacy. Yeah. Because uh, as you know, um, Newark is over 300 years old. Yep. It didn't uh, begin just before the rebellion and it didn't end after the rebellion. It's been a uh, cultural um, uh, sort of North Star for many artists, for many institutions. And um, and Afrero is part of that incredible legacy. Um, it seems like yesterday that Afrero was uh, was introduced to Newark, that Newark was introduced to Afrero. You said it was 18 years ago, which is amazing. Yep. And I still, when I think of the terms activating a space, when I think of the terms of you know, activating a neighborhood or a community, I think of a pharaoh because those were the those were the terms, those were the ideas, and that was the ongoing um, driving force. I think this idea of art as a um, way to educate, art as a way to change minds, and um, so again, I'm, I'm I'm really glad we're having this conversation because you're putting. I think and I know the kind of um, marker on Nork that is seldom discussed. Um, it's sort of discussed in a way of a problem as opposed to an opportunity. It's discussed as something in the past versus something that is very present and very important in the future. And, um, you know, artists are the um, 
of the leaders of, of very important conversations. So again, I want to thank you for having this conversation with me. Um, you had used the term uh, space, and I'm going to talk about your how you've uh, investigated space. Uh, I think very, very, um, in a very fascinating way, a couple of different ways. Uh, before I get to that, I wanted you to share with us um, what is it like managing this dual responsibility of time and engagement with both your personal practice and the uh, and the gallery. I'm glad you asked. And um, there's you there's trying to tell the truth, and the truth is complicated. It resists being compacted into a soundbite or a slogan. Um, in general, I try to I tend to think in big baggy paragraphs, not compact soundbites. There's also um, there's there's sort of the sense of I when I speak my single voice, mm-hmm. but again it, a lot of these these um, moments that have essentially built up and composed the past eighteen years. Um, eighteen years goes by fast. It's just you know tens of thousands of moments. Again, I I want to talk about work that's sort of collectively. Um, that's collective, that's iterative, that's generative, that's sort of polyphonic. So sometimes I just slip immediately into the we, and I cannot speak for my partner, Yvonne Davis, but a pharaoh is something that we both, we co-founded it, and there's that sense of what it means when two very different and in some ways equally stubborn people um, Sort of you. Each person contributes some of their their DNA, their personality, their tendencies, their um, capacities to give, their preoccupations, and it's interesting because you end up with work that um, you can't brand. It's not part of a personal branding exercise, um, as is very much the parlance of our present moment. It's it's work where uh, you you can be very proud of it and see your contribution, but you cannot claim it exclusively as your own. So there's this sort of I, we thing. So um, when we were younger and we would meet, uh, you know, grizzled, battle-hardened, longtime arts organization EDs, um, so often they had started their lives as working artists. And you could tell there was this um, complexity, sometimes pain underneath the surface. And they usually had very polished, professionalized answers for that kind of question that you just posed me. And behind the scenes, they might say, you know, I used to make films or, eh, you know, there's be this tension. So I just want to take this opportunity because you've asked me that question to say it's really hard and it's complicated. This work is more rewarding than anything else I can imagine doing. It is like the best high in the world. There are moments and nights 
and projects where it just doesn't get any better. It is just uniquely rewarding. Uh, but you also give, you give all of the best of yourself to it. So at this point in my life, when I think about my sort of creative self, I think because of doing a pharaoh, I am at once both more and less than what I would have been. It was, you know, the sort of sense of a priceless education and being forced to develop as a person in many different ways. And my work is shot in the city and it's about the city and it is completely informed by people that I would not have met in situations that I would not have been privy to, understood research I would have not undertaken, um, lived experiences, proximity to other people's lived experiences, that kind of um, intimacy and trust um, of people sharing their stories with me, that wouldn't have happened, you know, and that's what my practice is built on. Um, even the experience of getting eminent domain out of the first of Pharaoh, that was a kind of radicalization that sent off my work in a completely different direction. So there's that sense of both more and less. But um, I, I try to tell the truth. So sometimes we tell young artists that they shouldn't start a space and that we know they're going to anyway. <laughs> I was told repeatedly not to start a space and I did anyway. And I don't regret it for a second, but it's really hard. Thank you. So you mentioned, or we were, I said that we were going to talk about your, your practice, which is a personal practice is photography. And about your forensic landscape series, you say, and I just took part of the, the statement of yours. You say, I make photographs at or near night on foot and with a five mile radius of Newark. I make photographs of things that can always be found and are always about to vanish. So Emma, it seems you're fascinated by this idea of the state of change, not only in your photography practice, but in, in your everyday life. What is, what is it about the state of change that fascinates you? Oh, where to begin? Uh, where to begin? Again, there's, there's so many moments. Um, when I was quite young, I remember asking my mother why there were these men roaming in the street and sleeping on benches. And I remember her trying to explain in a way that a very young child could understand what later, you know, um, I realized what she'd been trying to explain to me was the policy of deinstitutionalization. Um, where, you know, again, that, that was very much the, the work of the Reagan era, where um, you have all these people um, no longer in these um, essentially mental hospitals, but there's no real provision or funding for their, their needs, their care. So there's this explosion of, of homeless people with mental health issues. So later as a teenager, um, like like so many folks, you know, um, wandering in and out of abandoned buildings, you know, factories, uh, institutions, and on some level, you're you're just sort of trying to understand like what happened, 
And and now um, I think what's happening with cities and with the built landscape is the um, the physical structures that are the evidence of, of the, the thing, the what happened, the before time, um, the shift, the change, the rupture, whatever you want to call it. Um, a lot of that has been demoed. So it's no longer um, present in the landscape. There's always that like absence presence thing in both forensics and photography. So that makes my work harder, but also much more rewarding is how do you, how do you visualize, how do you make aesthetic a landscape where really what you're looking at is um, the lingering evidence of policy decisions, um, the, you know, the half-life of chemicals in the landscape. Um, how do you do that? Do you take a portrait of someone who's experiencing like the third generation fallout of a policy decision that happened, you know, in 1972 before I was born? How do you make that picture? So my work has gotten harder, even though the, the general fixations, as you've seen, have stayed remarkably constant. Um, but there's there's new challenges because I can't make lazy pictures. You You can't just take a photo of a shuttered factory and and call it, you know, post-industrialization. You can't do that anymore. So there's there's no more lazy pictures to be had. You, you have to work harder to try to create that evidence. Um, and again, there's this kind of collision of the different the different selves, right? Um, you know, as a self-taught grant writer, I'm I'm kind of a, a policy nerd. So um Mentioning City Without Walls again, um, there were these grants in the 70s and they don't exist anymore. So we shouldn't be gaslighting younger artists and acting as if they do. Um, and they were federal level grants that were essentially a form of job retraining. And that's part of what allowed City Without Walls to start as you know a funky artist run space. So you know, you walk around a city and you see. The um, the numbers carved into the sides of, you know, say Essex County College. You know, when was something founded? How old is the plaque on it? And you can sort of read the landscape. And I'm always looking for those those little pieces of evidence. They're like fossils in the landscape. There was a time when it was different, because what you're doing is you're reading the past. And part of that uh, sort of a, a political sense is that's a reminder that the future could be different. Right. Thank you. Uh, another series that I'm curious to have you comment on is your surveillance uh, series. Uh, you title this series, Where It Falls, mm -hmm. and you state, the lowest that a civilian helicopter can fly in dense urban areas is 400 feet. My intention is to explore whether this tool of surveillance occupation and other state usage can be used in another way. I don't know if it can. What inspired this investigation for you? So ongoing investigation. Again, there's there's this moment and um, learning learning in real time and learning from your lived experience that's that's a hard education, but it's a priceless one and most of what I know that I think is a value, I, I sort of learned in real time by, by actually mm -hmm. sort of experiencing it. So 
Um, when we were in the process of getting evicted from the first of Pharaoh, um, I, I started thinking about the way that you get to know a space really intimately when you renovate it yourself, where you know the strength of the building and you know all of its little weaknesses, um, where things have been repaired. And um, I had these dreams and a lot of my work is, is you know, about as subtle as a brick. Uh, that's that's who I am. And so th- this is no exception. I had I had a series of dreams where I imagined something that was sort of like a sentient brick with wings, right? You know, weird stuff. And it would allow me to, to break through some of the weaker windows on the top floor and that we'd repaired and sort of travel back inside to the space that I missed, um, that we had sort of put together with our hands. And what I was imagining in no small part, uh, not only probably existed at the time and was probably um, funded by DARPA um, and you know designed by Boston Robotics, but something kind of uh, something kind of like that now probably is available on the consumer level because since that series was started, the um, price and quality and accessibility of drones for consumer usage um, has just been totally transformed. So again, I'm I'm not that old, but the incredible changes that have taken place in terms of um, what has happened technologically, um, my relationship to mapping and what is now sort of commonly known as Google Earth has transformed wildly. Um, a lot of the data, a lot of the visuals that power Google Earth are the, you know, if you go back far enough, mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting. Taxpayer dollars probably paid for a lot of that imagery. Some of it probably comes from military usage. I don't really know. Um, but so a lot of that is not necessarily new imagery, but the way that you used to be able to get a hold of that stuff was a real pain. And now there's this sort of promise of accessibility, but um, it's always on the platform's terms. So another impetus for that series, again, now is sort of, um, we're at a completely different moment in terms of people's relationship with time and immediacy and sort of trusting trusting the internet to be the arbiter of truth. But when I started the series, in addition to these, these dreams that I was having that were about wanting to return to a place that I couldn't, um, I also was kind of fascinated by people's um, initial sense of Google Earth and Google Street View as functioning in real time somehow. Um, I was interested in that lag between when the imagery would go go live, um, as it were. Um, So I started doing the rooftop painting because I was interested in part in how long it would take for that imagery to sort of get loose in the internet. Um, And I was influenced I think I didn't realize this at the time, but again, uh, my sort of uh, 1980s era artistic heroes, um, my sort of cultural elders, um, there was a very famous uh, sort of intervention by an artist named John Fechner, where he um, put um, writing in English and Spanish 
in huge letters on uh, buildings that had been um, burned as part of the deliberate disinvestment and abandonment of the South Bronx. And the um, then the TV cameras on the news essentially picked up that lettering. So that idea of imagery going viral is actually quite old. Great. So have you thought about using uh, drones? Yes and no. Um, I'm actually a, not a very technical girl in a lot of ways, um, or the technology is at this point quite ancient. So I shoot primarily still with a four by five camera and large format cameras haven't really evolved that much from the 19th century. Um, and that's what I like about them. They're really sort of durable fossils. There's no brain for me to argue with. It's a box with a really nice piece of glass in the front. Um, so if I'm shooting on the street and somebody asks me, you know, are, are you shooting a video? I can say no, and I can show them um, the bellows. I can take the lens off the front and sort of put my hand through the bellows. It's just a box. So in some ways, it requires a level of technical knowledge. There's no brain. There's there's nothing being done for you. But in other ways, it's a kind of extremely kind of simple technology, which which I like. I, I don't like having to mediate with a high level of technology. I actually really enjoyed the sort of um, the contrast between the sort of beauty and precision of four by five on film and the just sort of um, extreme rampant crappiness of first generation um, webcams and spy cams um, and all of these tiny little cameras that I was experimenting with affixing to toy helicopters and balloons, um, essentially to make a primitive drone. Again, all of this technology has now become vastly better and cheaper, but I always enjoyed that sort of tension between you know my my sort of tendencies to have um, a very precise image and something that's very deliberately kind of low res and imperfect. So I'm not really sure. Um, I th just think it's fascinating, broadly speaking, that we've all become self-surveillers. Let's, let's just think about that for a moment. That's what happened. That is what happened since I wrote that sentence, is now we, we do that work on ourselves, for ourselves. And I don't really know what that means, but it's it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Gallery of Pharaoh's mission has always been about art and its intersection with social, racial, and gender justice. And now we have the pandemic in addition to that. How have you and your partner, Yvonne Davis, navigated this dynamic and evolving mission most recently? So I think one of the most fascinating things about this time has been, again, just sharpening those contradictions. It has showed us that what we were told was not possible, was not reasonable. Um, and uh, we, were, we were told that other things were inevitable to the point of even being sort of natural, just the, the, the order of things. The invisible hand of capitalism has been mighty visible this year. So um, what, what I think is most interesting about this time is that what was possible in terms of resource allocation during emergency conditions um, I want to see if we just sort of go back to this fiction that things have to be the way they were before. 
that's that's really what I'm waiting to see. Um, I'm a, a huge fan of um, a gentleman named Vu who writes a blog that was originally, um, it had a terrible name. It was originally called Nonprofit with Balls. It now has a slightly less terrible name. It's called Nonprofit as Fuck. But he has been writing with just extraordinary clarity for, I think, at least a decade now about this, this idea of, of equity and funding practices. So I'm, I'm waiting to see. I am waiting to see if all of these values-based decisions about prioritizing organizations located in communities of color, in frontline communities, investments, large-scale investments, large being a relative term in my kind of work, but um, larger, let's say, investments in grassroots organizations and organizations that have a different relationship to community. Um, I, I want to see if all of these things that I was told I could not see, that I could not wish for or ask for or demand, that suddenly were possible. I want to see if they become entrenched funding practices. And I doubt I'm alone in this, but I, I am waiting to see because that has been the most interesting thing is seeing all these um, emergency actions suddenly become um, seen as possible. So let's see. There's a, a wonderful essay that was published a, a few months actually before he passed away by David Graeber that was published in Jacobin magazine. And it's called um, something to the effect of um, after the pandemic, we shouldn't go back to sleep. And um, that's that's really what I'm getting at. Or are we going to go back to business as usual? Well, Emma, it's been fascinating. <laughs> I, I'm going to title this talk, Changing the Order of Things. And when I think of you and I think of what Pharaoh uh, things as we thought they would be or should be, as you said, have changed. And uh, I, I know that you and Yvonne and Afero have been uh, those disruptors that we need so, so much. And thank you. Oh, thank you so much for asking really wonderful questions um, and just um, allowing us this space to, to talk about Newark and its marvelous complexity. That's, that's a still kind of a rare opportunity. I wish that it wasn't, but um, thank you. You're welcome. And have a good day and be safe. You Bye. too. Take care. Bye-bye. Tune in next time for another conversation with our guest. We'll share their Newark, New Jersey cultural journey. If you'd like to share your Newark, New Jersey story, Go to our website and submit your unique journey on our contact page. I'm your host, Roger Tucker. I look forward to sharing these fascinating Newark, New Jersey conversations with you sometime soon. So long and be well.